Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, people, I'm a hip, but I'm only as hip as my guest, but I'm getting hipper. I have this new single-serve coffee combo from Cafe Valet. Their, uh, their brewers are inexpensive. There's as little as $25 for a brewer and a 10-sample coffee pack, which includes decaf. You know I drink the decaf. And for just $20, you can get it when you use the discount code COOPER. So compared to other coffee, other single-serve coffee systems, you can save up to 100 bucks. And with Cafe Valet, I get that great tasting cup of coffee brewed in just minutes, just the way I like it every time. So how's that for hip? So go to cafevalet.com and use the code COOPER and save even more. That's right. That's cafevalet.com. And the coupon code is COOPER. And you get this combo for just 20 bucks. I'm telling you, people, it's good coffee. And they have decaf. Joanne made me some decaf today. And I was hoping I, I have the, the Cafe Valet in the studio. But Joanne has the uh, the French press at home. And she made some decaf. But this stuff is just as good. And it's it's easy. So anyway, we have a great show. I'm very excited that my guest came on. Because she had to cancel a few weeks ago. Because she was sick. And, I, and the funny thing is, like people feel bad when they have to cancel. And when, whenever someone's sick, I want them to get better. Or when anyone gets an audition, I go... That's awesome because then if you book a really big gig when you come in, you sound that much cooler on my show. And my guest, and I love her name because she's had this name her whole life, and it's not the L.A. thing. It's Kate Mazur. Kata. Kata. God, I know I screwed. <laughs> I was just talking to you. Oh, my God. I feel so bad. We just talked about this. I flubbed it. I was talking about how it sounds like Kato Kaylin. How many times do people flub your name? They only flub my name. They don't, I mean, when people get my name right, I'm sort of amazed and admiring um, it's it's funny, you know, people feel very, um, I feel bad when I mess up people's names, people feel bad when they mess up my name, but um, I feel bad for people feeling bad because why should they get it right? It's an impossible name, but I do remember I was on the set once or something years and years ago, and one of the, the, um, the second AD said, oh, you know, we got a, we got a memo to make sure not to mess up your name, it really upsets you. And I thought, well, where would that memo have come from? I don't care at all if people mess up my name. I expect them to mess up my name. What are some of the weirdest variations? Because I'm thinking you probably get, because I know and my last name's Cooper, and people screw that up. They've people called me up. Copper, and I'm like, yeah. I was at a Is wedding. Really? What, what's the problem? It's just two O's. I know. I was at a wedding, and they said, I was in a wedding party, and they said, Steve Copper. And I went up to the guy after, and I said, what is wrong with you? It's like, it's like how do you not know? You know? But now, I, I bet you've gotten Kate and Kath a lot. I have, but my favorite one was when I was in college. I was at some party in college, and some guy drunk a little too much, and I was with a bunch of my friends, and he was trying to remember our names. And he said, okay, so, okay, so, all right, so it's like Cindy, Susan, Lisa, Kaka. <laughs> I thought, really, Kaka? Kaka, that's what you pulled out. Like, that would have been my name. Now... When did you decide you wanted to get into this career? I read on your website about you used to read books a lot when you were a kid. Yeah. And you always thought, and you do a lot of book narration. Yeah. I now, love reading. as a kid, did you ever think you would take this path? Or what did you want to do as a kid? Did you watch TV? Or what, what attracted you to this business? Or did that come later in your life? You know, I was, I was, um, I knew from a young age, but I won't say that it sort of popped out of my head you know, like I wasn't in a vacuum. What happened was um, there was, a, I was with my uh, family one summer and my mother had a back injury and she needed to figure out something for my brother and I to do. And there was a children's theater company there and she very smartly put us both in it. And, um, and you know, it, it was, so the way that I began wasn't as a professional. The way that I began was like 
doing children's theater, doing school theater. Do, you know, it, it, it was just much more about the pleasure of doing it. I didn't have any kind of, um, oh, I want to be famous or I want um, people to pay attention to me or look at me. It was that I just really loved the feeling of, um, of you know, I think, I think it's similar in some ways to reading. You know, it's, it's entering into a world where you get to use your own way of thinking and your own way of seeing the world through a certain channel. And, um, and I think that that is still, um, that's still the reason why I love it. And it's still the reason why, you know, I don't think that I'm necessarily, um, I don't think that I'm, uh, uh, how do I say this? I don't think I'm your classic actress type even though I did hug you, you know, when I first met you. Well, no, you actually, that's that, but no, that's just that's just L.A. Yeah. That's that's not. That's I, just, not I was always a hugger. See, that's funny because I, I I became hugger later in life. Like when I was younger, yeah. I I didn't want people to touch me. I was like, oh, and then later in life, one of my buddies just always hugged me. I go, and I finally said, all right. And then sometimes when you start doing that, you overhug sometimes. Oh yeah. Like you come and hug someone, and they go, what are you doing? Yeah. Get off me. Yeah, you gotta be. You know, m- navigating life to me is this weird thing of like you gotta know how you feel and you gotta know how other people feel. And you got to somehow all, you know, be playing with that gray area in between all the time, you know, so that you bring your own self to things. It's just like acting. So you're going to bring your own self and you're going to bring your own authenticity and you're going to bring whatever you have. But then there's somebody else. Right. And what and what are they bringing and how conscious are you going to be of what they need? And um, I remember hugging somebody once. I never occurred to me there was anything wrong with it. And I hugged a woman once and she said, oh, that's right. You like to hug. And I thought, oh, my God, like, she really hates that about me. Like, I did, she remembered it. Like, that's how awful it was for her. But she's a jerk to say that. Yeah, I almost said, yeah, and you're a bitch. But yeah. I didn't, you know, and because because I had other evidence that that was true. But, but also because of the way she said it and that she made me feel bad for it. But I think that those are moments that are important to me because uh, I can, I know a lot about how I feel. But. The way other people feel is is completely, I don't know. I don't know how other people feel. I need to find out that, you know? But you don't need to. I mean, my feeling is always this, you know, and I, I have a philosophy. It's like I got in an argument with someone like a year ago, and the person was very, a socialist, a, a total narcissist, narcissist. I mean, the person, I knew him for 15 years. He, I never saw him without a hat. Because he's bald, he right, right, right. but he won't even take it off. Like me, <laughs> I wear hats because I like it, but I like being bald. I don't care. And something happened, and he would whenever it was one of those people who was always needy, 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 needy. Yeah. And you'd be there for him. And then when I was in the hospital, didn't hear from him. And then something happened, they blew me up, and I wrote, I sent him a nasty message. And then I thought someone said, "Well, you guys should make up. You know, life's too short." And I thought, you know what? Life is too short to hang out with jerks. Yeah. Life is short as I want to hang out with people who appreciate me and want to be around me and aren't jerks and call me when i was in the hospital and that's a funny thing we can't figure out other people but i think we have to choose who we want to hang out with i think that's absolutely true and i think that that's one thing that um you know that i love about age i do not i don't spend a second with anybody that i don't enjoy spending time with you know i mean unless i have to right of work or something but even then you know i'm not going to hang out and talk to them and it's uh, but i'm i'm I, i like I have a, I think I have a, a pretty um, high bar for what what I like to be around, you know. And and then I think about that and I go, well, I like a lot of different kind of people, but I really, um, 
I, I really don't like uh, cruelty or heartlessness or um, like I like funny, but I don't like mean funny. Right. You know, you get to it. You'd, everybody, we've got our like, it's, you know, you, the sweet spot of what really stimulates you about other people. And all of my, I think all of my friends, they feel like they're like me to me. You know, they, they, they like to talk. They love to think. They love to find things funny. And they got big hearts. I mean, that's, boy, that is really um, self-absorbed. Like, I'm just going to give this great description of myself. No, no. It's just, but, but I mean, that's what I'm attracted to in people. Well, I think, and then we should be. And I always think that's something that, you know, in this business, there are a lot of phonies and a lot of shallow people. And you run into that. But and you have to sit there and circulate yourself with people who aren't that way. Because yeah. it's, bottom line is, you know, we want to live a good life. And you don't, I mean, as I said, you know, no time for jerks. No time for punks. Yeah. You don't want to hang out with it. Yeah. So now, now, where'd you go to college at? I went to NYU. Okay, now, th- were you there for theater? I was there for theater. I was a drama major. I was It was undergraduate. I didn't go to graduate school, but I went to undergraduate. And, you know, because I really had always, that was going to be my path. And, um, and you know, from, I, I guess, from when I was seven years old or something, that was pretty much going to be my path. But again, I wasn't, I hadn't done it as a professional. I just did it because I liked it. Um and I went to NYU because I was afraid that if I went to a school that wasn't a drama school, that I would be really good in that school and get a lot of approval and then get out in the world and not be able to to compete or not be able to handle it. I was always... Um, I was just always afraid I wasn't good enough. You know, I was always afraid that, you know, I'm not really going to rate. And so I I wanted to know. I didn't want to spend another four years thinking this is going to be my life path and then get out into the world. And, and so I wanted to go to NYU. I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to be around a lot of um, people who wanted to do it as a profession so that I could kind of see, like, am, is this a good path for me? Would I fit well in this? Um, you know, and I think... I think when I look back, uh, I wish I had not thought that way. I wish I had done things differently on a certain level, but I also think you could not have talked me out of that. That was really very, very strong um, feeling. I really didn't want to waste my time um, in a fantasy about what I could be. So you graduate. I graduate. And then what is your path and how do you, because New York, everyone says, you know, it's so crazy because there's, there's some productions there, I mean, for TV and movies, but there's lots of theater and then there's commercials and, and where do you go and do you get an agent right away? Well, see, I, I, I did everything weird. I ended up, um, at there's, I was in the drama school and there was a school inside the drama school called the Experimental Theater Wing or ETW. And you just did a lot of wild stuff. And I ended up spending my last year there and was incredibly happy because uh, I liked the inventiveness of it. I liked the the diversity of it. And there was a lot of international uh, actors. People came from different places and we just made a lot of theater. Like it wasn't so much, you know, let's take check off and do it. We just made stuff up all the time. And um, and my mentor there was a director named Ann Bogart. I don't know if you've ever come across her, but she was really influential for me and uh, so I went into experimental theater for a few years but experimental theater at that time in New York really really great people but it was really you ended up kind of doing your pieces 
in like a loft for 20 other people who you were going to go see their pieces, you know, a week later. It was incredibly insular. And I started working um, with teenagers doing theater uh, um, uh, in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. And I loved that too, you know, and we would, uh, we would kind of put plays together with them, improvisational plays, and they were kids, you know, lived in really tough circumstances. And there was this moment when I, and I loved these kids. Um, they were mostly Hispanic and they were just, just fantastic kids. And there was this moment when I realized that that they would hate the kind of work that I was doing. Like if they came to see me in something, it would be so like artistically high pitched, only a dog could hear it, you know, and there'd be, I wanted to do something that they'd be excited to see. And that was what made me want to do television is I thought there's something about television where everybody gets to watch and everybody gets to have an opinion and it's not elite. And, um, and that meant a lot to me. And then as soon as I started to want to do television, I moved to LA. So you just said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And now was it was it a scary move or have you been here before? And I always ask, where did you first live when you moved here? Because it's changed so much in the times. Okay, well, the joke is that the place I first lived is the nicest place I ever lived because I came out here and I had a friend whose um, sister was a TV star at the time, but she was living, she had moved out of her house and so we lived in this house in the top of Laurel Canyon with a jacuzzi. And I mean, it was just, I'd never have lived there again anywhere like that. And I didn't know that. And my brother came over one day because he was living here and um, working at Fox. And he, he came over and he said, you know that you'll never live in a place this nice again. And I thought, well, that's a real vote of God. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, you know, this is it. Just, this is the highlight of your career. Enjoy it. But, you know, it was kind of good to hear that because then I went, oh, Oh, so this isn't how everybody lives. Everybody doesn't have a house with a jacuzzi on the top of Laurel Canyon. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, I, I had a very easy landing here. Um, my brother was here. He was working at 20th Century Fox for Larry Gordon. He was in development. Uh, but it wasn't so much that, that he helped me with my career, not that he wouldn't have wanted to. But it was more that uh, I had lived in New York for eight years. And the only way that I can describe it is like New York, it, it felt like what was going on outside of me was the same as what was going on inside my head. It was just so noisy up here and it was noisy out there and it was all kind of rushing. And I came here and I just felt so peaceful. Like the outside world was so much more calm that I just settled in to myself in a way that I hadn't ever, I, I felt like it was a good place for me. And I also felt like when I met casting people, the things about me that were probably more run-of-the-mill in New York, you know, I've, I'm very East Coast, and I'm very um, smarty pants, and and there were things about me that seemed to, to stand out more, that were more needed here, that, that there was more use for the kind of actor that I was than in New York, where everybody was kind of like me. So it was a very soft landing. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a famous person and I haven't had a, a famous career. But you have minions on uh, Twitter. I do. You have minions. And you know what? I was like, and I saw that, I went, she has minions. I have minions. <laughs> I have my wonderful minions. Um, and uh, that, that has all come from, from uh, major crimes.
I mean, major crimes is the, major crimes has excuse me, <clears throat> major crimes has amazing fans, very devoted fans. I watch it. That, see, and you know, and it's funny because. I was tired, so I fell asleep last night. We watched the X Files, and we had the major crimes. We always we DVR it, and it's great because it's on at five o'clock. So yeah. what we usually do is, but I was busy. We usually, when we have dinner at seven thirty after Jeopardy, we watch the major crimes. We always every Monday, but I didn't see part two. But anyway, you know we'll, we'll get we'll get back to the major crimes. I love the major crimes, but the major crimes. Um, the the sorry my you have water. <clears throat> um, the Minions was a complete shock to me. It was a complete shock. I had no idea that they were out there or that they... I didn't know I had this fan base. And um, what happened was I'm an audiobook narrator. And one of my producers, one of my audiobook producers, I've done that for 14 years, said, you know, you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on Twitter. The whole business is on Twitter now and it's the way people are communicating. And one, one day I was on Twitter and I... I don't know what, I tweeted something and this whole bunch of stuff came up about my character. And, you know, they they drop pictures of me, they write fan fiction about my character, they make up drinking games. About, I mean, there was this whole world <laughs> of um, of Hobbes fans. And, uh, and I just had never had an, I mean, it was incredible. I still think it's incredible. Well, you know, you're on Major Crimes, but before that, when you first moved out here, when did you start getting work? And what was your path? Did you get, because you said you, the casting people, because you're a little persnickety, as we may say, they liked you and they probably found it very refreshing. Yeah. And so when did you start getting work? Because I know, like, I look at your credits and, you know, you've been, you were in a lot of, you know, shows beginning. I mean, you're in a fabulous Teddy Z with John Cryer, with John Cryer. And uh, I was looking at it in Herman's Head, which I love that show. I was in I was in a lot of shows with. I mean, I had a very very, um, you know, I didn't have a big break. I didn't have a big break. It wasn't the way my. I I, I think that I was very lucky to have casting people and friends who, um, you know, f- casting people who became friends, and sort of championed me a little bit and supported me in terms of bringing me in and so I always worked a bit and I always had jobs come up but I never was on a big hit with a big character I just kind of worked and um, and uh, I guess that was uh, uh, that's a kind of great thing in my case because it made me keep looking like how can I become better how can my work become better um how what you know at one point I wasn't working a lot so I just got in my car and drove to Canada because there was a lot of work going on in Vancouver that was a whole you know chapter so you you sat there you 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 weren't working a lot and so you sat there and you were very proactive and you said okay what I'm gonna do is there's work in Canada yeah now did you have someone to stay with or did you just drive up there I literally I at one point I was sleeping under somebody's desk. I mean, I, I just, what happened was, see, this is, is, okay, can I just take a detour for a second? Yeah, sure. I love your interviews because they're actually real conversations and I hate small talk. I'm not good at it. I don't hate it if other people do it. I'm just, right. I just don't like it. I want to know wh- how people really feel or what's really going on or I've always been like that. 
know, so if I go to a party, I'm always in the corner with one person having, you know, or if major crimes, I'm always in somebody's trailer. They never know where to find me because I'm always <laughs> in somebody's trailer having a conversation. And um, so I love your interviews, uh, but they're unusual. You know, there's, there's, there's some people that do what you do. You know, Terry Gross will do it or Mark Mariner do it. People who have real extended conversations where it's not sound bites and and it's it's as authentic as somebody is willing to take it or what they're willing to say. Um, and as I was listening, I thought, so how authentic are you willing to be? You know, how what are you willing to say? You know, are you going to try to, you know, be a, a, a good interview in what does that mean? Or how much do you want to share and and who's listening <laughs> you know, and, and what will they think or whatever. Um, but I remember coming home from an audition. I went to an audition. This was years ago. And I did a fine job. And everything was fine. And I remember thinking, not one molecule in the universe has changed because of what I just did. Nothing. Like nothing that wasn't that didn't make anything happen in the world and for all that work it it's not my part it won't be my part it doesn't matter that i did that there's there's nothing and i wasn't depressed i just thought wow that didn't move any air anywhere and i drove home and i was screaming and i wasn't screaming crying I was screaming like, ah, like, like just, I, I just wanted to just crash the glass on something, make something happen. And I remember getting home and I said, I'm done. I'm taken to my bed. And it was very like, it was very Victorian. I was like, I'm taking to my bed. It was one o'clock in the afternoon. And a friend of mine called me and she said, she wanted me to help her on an audition. I said, I'll help you from my bed. I am not leaving my bed and I got in bed and people came over things happened I worked on this audition with someone and somebody called me and said a friend of mine called and said I'm gonna go up to Canada there's work up there and I said hmm, maybe I'll go to Canada and that was it and then I just made some phone calls and some people knew some people I didn't know anybody some people knew some other people I went up to Canada. I drove up by myself. And the bookend of that story really is that I drove by myself through the Redwoods. And something happened. This was before cell phones. You know, so you couldn't like waste your time on the phone. It was three days in the car. And all you had was like whatever radio station was in that part of the world or maybe you got no reception at all. So it was hours and hours and hours of being inside your own head or in looking out the window. And when I got at the other end of the Redwoods, I felt like something had changed in me and it never changed back. The Redwoods, I'm going to tell you this. It's funny you mentioned that. I was just talking to someone about this the other day. God, 10, 12 years ago. Or I, was that maybe longer? I don't know. I had I had got a DUI. I was, in a, I was depressed and my buddy said, hey, you're coming with us, or early birthday present, to reggae at the river in the Redwoods. I went up there. I don't smoke pot. 
not that I don't want to, I just can't handle it. <laughs> and I then I smoked pot one day there and the girl I was talking to her head became a sheep's head and I said, This isn't a good sign. <laughs> but the next day we made some cocktails and we were walking around the Redwoods and there's a tree in the Redwoods that there's two trees they like get married and there's like a hole, like a car can drive through. And it's true, but when we walked through the Redwoods, when you just looked up, you're like, These things have been around forever. And it's like you sat there and it was a calming effect. And it was really amazing that I just yeah. sat there. My buddy's like, you're going to love, you know, and we'd walk around and yeah, it was amazing. And what is that? I took a friend uh, from Italy uh, to uh, Moore Woods at one point. And, um, and, you know, when we left and he was going to head back to Italy and he said, wait a minute, I want to, I just want to stand here because uh, I'm never going to smell this smell for the rest of my life because there weren't any redwoods in it right and i remember thinking like yeah like there's something here there's but it had a great effect on me and i went up to canada and i i i got an agent in canada and at one point i had no place to stay and i was sleeping under her desk and uh i I just would meet people and then they'd put me up for a few days. I mean, you know, I'm sure I was a pain in the ass. Right. But I, um, and I did a lot of work up there. And what I realized was, oh, you just aren't getting a chance to work enough. That's all that's happening. Like, you just need to work. You just need to, if you just need to have, you just, it's, but it's not about money. It's not about anything. It's about getting to express something in yourself. And I wasn't getting to express that. You know, that's why I'm a big believer in acting classes. I'm a big believer in all that because I think you got to express something. You got to get it out and then you got to shape it and you got to see what it feels like. And you, when you get on a set, you got to be ready to go. And especially TV, it's not a rehearsal medium. It's not about warming up or getting a good run into something. You know, you want to already really know what you come to do and what you want to express and then then you can play but uh, I wasn't getting to do that enough and um, and then I went up there and went oh there's nothing wrong with you there's just not enough work and that's all it is so when did you sit there decide to come back from Canada what was it because you were getting work and it's something like I mean it's like anything you said you, yeah. you want to be around work and you want to work but then you get to at one point and say you know what though you know do I have to go to back to LA or what happened? Yeah, what happened? Um, I, I've always kind of just followed my nose. You know, it, I've never had a, a plan. I've never had much of any of a plan. I just kind of, the next interesting thing is sort of where I go. You know, when I started doing audiobooks, it was just because my friend Karen White, who's a, a narrator, said, you know, you should audition for this company I work for. And I was like, why would anybody want to listen to me for 12 hours in the car you know I thought it was a terrible idea but she said do it so I did it you know and and that was um that changed my life I mean if anything changed my work in my life audiobooks changed it because suddenly you're you're doing 50 characters you're doing all the characters and it's all about you know how you meet a piece of material for hours and hours and hours you're meeting material and um and you're meeting characters, and you're playing both sides of a scene, and you're thinking about dynamic. And it was finally something that that used me up, and it used me up completely. And by the end of the day, you know, 
I was just every part of my brain and my heart, everything was used up. And I'd always wanted to feel that way. And that was hugely great for me and changed my work and changed everything. But I think, so I think I just was up there for about six months. I did a, um, a Disney TV movie about the Donner Party. Uh, that was, I, I played the German woman whose baby dies. Okay. Uh, in like the 800th uh, covered wagon back. You know, like I'd always right. be like, where's my wagon? And the guy would go like, whoa, like way back. I was so far away from the camera most of the time that I would be talking loudly to people and the camera could never pick it up. That's how far away you were. Like, I mean, we were at one point we were building a log cabin or something and I was going, I played the provinces, you know, like I just like goofing around. Nobody was ever going to pick it up. Uh, so I did that and then I... um. At some point, I just came back. It was kind of like, okay, well, whatever job I'd been doing ended, and I didn't have a place to live, and so it was either go back to my apartment here, or find somebody else's desk to sleep under. Right. You know. <laughs> um, so it 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 all kind of just unfolded. I came back, and and then and things really changed after that. Well, the, the audiobooks, mm -hmm. now you said your friend said you should audition for it. Yeah. Now, what was the audition like? Do you go in, I mean, because I've done a voiceover audition before, yeah. and, you know, I'm used to doing this, and then you go yeah. in, and they're like, okay, and they give you the copy, and then all of a sudden, there's a mic right in your face, and I'm like, even though there's a mic always in my face, yes. I had no problem, I'm like, yes. what the, and then I, I start to, like, sit there, and I go, I get inside your head, and you're like, and I'm thinking, just read it like you do your show, like yeah, you yeah, said, yeah. very conversational, but you never do that. You always sit there and go, hey, they, you know, so well, what was your first audition? So like? I got so lucky because my first audition, what they gave me a Joyce Carol Oates short story to read. And um, if you've ever read Joyce Carol Oates, it's very um, dense prose, really interesting sentences, very complicated. And um, so I think the fact that that kind of went right into my wheelhouse, you know, I... I love language and I love playing with language and I and I can and I and I I think everybody who does audiobooks there must be if you did like a brain scan of us we all have certain areas of our brain that probably look exactly alike because there's something about your your relationship to language that you you're reading something that you've never read before but somehow you kind of know where it's going you can feel from the syntax and the language you can feel what it wants. And um, and because, you know, you can't prepare an audiobook. I mean, you can prepare the characters, but you got 400 pages, you're not going to remember what sentence you're in. So it's some, there's something about the way audiobook people think that's got to be a certain very, very specific thing. So you could have incredibly talented actors, way more talented, but they wouldn't be good at audiobooks because that's not where their skill lies. You know, and then audiobook people, we we just have this weird wheelhouse where it's the way, you know, you think. So so to get this piece of material that was so challenging gave me a chance to get lost in it and and not be so um I mean, I I think doing doing little things is much harder. I think most actors would say that and you know, doing one line of a voiceover, that's right. a lot more challenging than reading 
you know, an, an entire page. And of you something. get you can't get into flow. You can't get into a flow, and you and you can't. Um, by the time you get your breath, it's over. You know, like you know, you're right. trying to you're trying to pull, and 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 it's great. You know, you always see like when you're on a set and you've just got a couple of lines and you're just sweating it, like working them, like you know, almost like that cliche. You know, I must go to the bus now. I must go to the bus. Like, right. There's, you know, the the more sophisticated version of that, like, oh, what do I want? And, That's true because we do get in our sex. I know when I did stand up comedy, you know, you sit there and you'd be used to doing thirty minutes or forty minutes on a road, and then you have to do a seven minute set for let's say audition for something. And you sit there and go, oh my God, seven minutes. And then instead of just doing, you know. Seven a, minutes a, a few, of your 30 minutes. Yeah, right. you sit there and you try to compact 14 minutes and you're, and you're not even waiting for the, cla- the, cla- the crowd to laugh. And it's true, you get in your head and you're like, okay, I got to do this. And then you're sitting in your head and you're going, okay, I usually wait and relax. But no, no, I have to get this. It's an audition for seven minutes for TV thing. And so, yeah, it's the so same So suddenly thing. you're talking faster. Like, look, I mean, in this, in this interview with you, um, if we weren't talking in on a radio mic uh i i would probably talk slower or you know i wouldn't try to get a whole anecdote you know there's a different way of talking that almost has to do with like oh no let me let me try to give the whole story let me try to give the whole thing and um and there is something weird that happens i mean there is no question that when you have just a little bit to do on a set that's a much harder job than when you have something meaty to do because you get lost in something meaty you get lost you can't get in your head you need you you need something to chew on and i think the whole purpose of of acting technique and getting to know yourself at all is just so that if things aren't flowing you know if things are flowing get out of the way but if things aren't flowing you i think of it like what can i chew on so that i don't chew on myself like i need something to put my focus on so that I'm not watching myself or listening to myself or trying to be good or trying to be good, you know, or um, there's something about going like, oh, I know, oh, okay. That's what's great about having another actor with you, you know, is it's like you, bottom line, just look at them. Right. Because human beings have so much going on. If you really look over there and also you have enough going on inside you because you have a lot of feelings when you're at a job. You know, you want to be good. You want to do it right. You're afraid you won't hit your mark. You you think maybe, you know, maybe you didn't do so hot or maybe you could do that better. You're hungry. You're tired. Your feet hurt. What's your line? There's 8,000 things going on before you even talk about the material, which gives you 800,000 right. things. So it's just a about knowing, like, what is the context? What is important to me here? What am I going to be paying attention to? There's this book. God, what is it called? Oh, okay, I'm not going to remember. This guy did a study of his brain. I love these kind of books. He did a study of his brain, and he was writing a book. So he put himself into an MRI, and he, he filmed in the MRI his brain when he was both blocked and when he was creative. And he could tell, like, when he would get lost in writing. He was just writing in his mind. When he would get lost in writing in the chapter, and then what it looked like when he was distracted. And when he was distracted, every part of his brain was lighting up. Just the way you might think. Like, all the sections of his brain were different colors. And when he got into the flow, his entire brain was quiet, except one tiny little place was lit up. 
And that's what you want. Right. You just want to somehow find a way to light up that one spot that keeps you in the flow and keeps you just moving down that little path. Well, know? how do you do that with the audiobook? Because you said you're doing sometimes 12 different characters, which must be somewhat intimidating for the fact that it's like anything when we do a different voice. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to sit there and go, yeah. hey, wait, okay, that's you know that's her. And yeah. then now, wait a second, that's her doing this. I mean, how do you sit there and keep on the flow when you do that? Well, I think that um, there's, there's a couple of things that go on. There's a really uh, great contract that is silent contract with audiobook listeners. And the silent contract is, I'm one person reading this book. And you know I'm one person reading this book. So I'm not going to suddenly, if you listen to a play, you're going to hear distinctly different people. You're not going to get to hear that with me. I'm one person. And my contract with you is to tell you this story in the best way I know how, in the way the author is telling it. So that's my job. So if I'm doing a British person and then an African person and then a two-year-old child, and if I'm doing all that, it still is all under the umbrella of a bedtime story and or an anecdote at the dinner table. You know, it's still under the... Uh, nonfiction is like an anecdote. Fiction is a bedtime story. And so if I'm telling you this story that's very dramatic and I'm telling you this story where this, you know, serial killer is, you know, is tied up this woman and she, you know... I need to keep your belief that you're in the middle of that story. So whatever the story will hold is what I have to give you. So if you listen to like the Harry Potter audiobooks, which are probably the gold standard of incredible characterization, they ha can hold a lot. You know, the extreme characters, it's for young people. You can play it to the rafters. You know, you're doing... A different kind of a novel or a, a, a really internal or sort of you know quieter book um, or a sadder book you know you can't break you don't want to break that whatever that author's doing you don't want to break that but you're allowed to fill it up as much as that book is telling you to fill it up okay so you've got a lot of room but you got to listen to the book you know I have uh, a wonderful wonderful narrator Cassandra Campbell is a friend of mine and she'll say, you know, just when she feels like, you know, she's got to remember where she is, she's just listen to the book. Just listen to the book while you're reading it. And and it will tell you what you're going to do. And I think that that's true about TV acting, too. You know, that there's a there's a casting director that once said to me, you know, you're trying to make a dollar out of 99 cents. And... It's a great expression that I think about all the time uh, about, you know, it can only hold what it can hold. If you're a waitress coming to the table and you're saying, do you want more coffee? And it's a quirky kind of a thing where it'll add to it that you put a little bit of spin on it and make it a little weird or make it a little funny. You can hold that. But if the scene is about those two people at the table and the only reason that you're coming in to ask if they want coffee is something that serves them, you you can't make a dollar out of 99 cents just go give them the coffee so it's 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 all about that to me is what is needed here what is what is being asked for and that's the way to quiet 
all that stuff because otherwise you've got thousands of choices. Like I could never do stand up. I don't. I mean, you know, I could. I just don't think I'd be very good at right. it because, um, because that's a pretty wide open field. I mean, you're creating from top down, the way you everything, everything, you know, and to many times a kind of a uh, a hostile audience on a certain level. Like you got to win them over. Right. You know, and and I'm much more. I like to, I like to fit into a context. I like to be a part of something, that I can sniff out and feel what is my part of this. Um, I don't um, need to be the most important thing in the room. When I ask you a question now, as you're getting success in the audiobooks, do you think that helped your acting? Just for the fact that you had the confidence that you you have that confidence, and it's basically it's like okay. If I don't get booked on something, I'm still I'm getting still booked. Gonna I'm going to work. I mean, yeah. do you think that, and then how did that help you roll Changed into everything. the major crimes? Because I know you started out on the, on the closer. Yeah. Now, what was that like? Was it was that just like, we're going to bring her on once? Yeah. So, and so you, you would, was it a long audition process or was it no. just, it was a, it was a one it was day? one audition. I mean, and this is what I really think about, about all people who are in their field or want to be in our field. You just do not know what's coming down the pike. You know, there's always another bus coming, and you don't know what the bus is. And this was one audition for one part, but I'll always remember the audition because I had never seen the closer. And I watched it. Thank God for like Hulu and all these things online that you can actually now, if you haven't seen a show, you can you can see it. Right. Um. And I remember watching it, and this doesn't always happen. I remember thinking, oh, I know what I can contribute here. I actually know what I bring to this. I know how I fit. And I didn't think it was more than one audition. But I'll never forget that feeling of, like, I looked at Kira, and I thought, oh, I'm kind of the opposite of Kira. Like, Kira's like, she's like this southern kind of like big, all over the place, kind of, you know, emotional character. Okay, I'm going to be the Northeast smarty pants. And I can do that. And I can provide her with that. Because that's what my purpose is there, is to be a counterpoint. And um, and that's, so that was an unusual thing. But yeah, it was one audition. And I know that you've interviewed other people major crimes and even philip and bill i know right and um who are lovely i mean they're lovely i love these people um it's a great environment and boy you know if you give them a little they'll run with it those writers will do something with it james duff will do something with it and um i never expected that i never expected that and then i then i i think i did the closer five times and so you do it five times, and you're probably it's like you're probably excited when you go back because it's one of those things. Oh. It's a cool cast, and you said they're smart people. And they're for fantastic. for an actor, that's what you want. You know, yeah. you want you know. So you do it, and then you think the show's going off the air, and do you think that's it? I'm not going to work with these people again, or how did it end up that you ended up on major crimes? Um. Well, also something happened the second time I did it. The second time I did The Closer, um, my father died. And I buried my father the day before I went back to be on The Closer. And as you can imagine, that's 
it's a weird day. It's a surreal. Oh, when my father passed away, my brother called me and I had to come and do a show. And it was, I got a call because they're back east. And it was like nine in the morning. And I'm like, well, you know, well, I have to come down and do it. And I still remember that when I was on the phone. I was like, well, I, I'm for 3,500 miles away. I'm not going to, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. It's surreal. Um, but boy, it connects you up to something. I mean, it, you know, you're, you're kind of very alive. And, um, and I, and I showed up the next day. And, you know, this is an extraordinary set of people with huge hearts. And they took such good care of me. And I wasn't like a mess or crying or anything like that. What they did was it just turned out to be kind of the conversation that was going on that day. And whether it, I remember John Tenney talking to me for about an hour about when I think his mother had died and how much that meant to me. He sat next to me while I was having my makeup and hair done and just talked to me about it. And so... And then all the women in hair and makeup who were extraordinary, they were all talking about the parents they'd lost and what that felt like. Um, it, uh, it was the director. Uh, it was it was incredible. Like everybody just sort of knew that that was what had happened, and it became part of that day. Uh, so then, but but remember when the show ended, we already started Major Crimes. Okay, see, I, I didn't I didn't yeah, watch. Yeah. So the what program. happened was. They that was a that was kind of a hail mary. Like, hey, I wonder if this will work. You know, they didn't know if that would work, but but they loved the people, um, and all the writers and everybody. I think they wanted to stay together, and and uh, they came up with an idea. James Duff had an idea, and they had an idea, and they made it work. But we, um, I was on the last episode of the closer, and um, the, I think second episode of Major Crimes. So. The way that they did it was they had the last episode of The Closer, and right after the last episode, they showed the first episode of Major Crimes. So it was a very seamless um, transition. Okay. And so I knew that I would be on Major Crimes before The Closer ended. What I didn't know was how much I would be on Major Crimes. Yeah, because you said you were on five episodes yeah, of The Closer. Yeah, over three seasons. Yeah, and then this. Well, it's funny because the whole transition, I never watched The Closer. And my girlfriend, Joanne, watched it. She loves it. You know, she loved that show. Yeah, it was great. And then she started putting on major crimes. And in the beginning, I'm like, because she watches a lot of things. I'm like, yeah, okay. But then she's, I sat there and I watched it. And I really enjoyed it. But I'll tell you one thing I love about the show, and this is the stupidest reason to love the show, is I always smile when I read Duppy Demetrius, whatever that guy's name Duppy is. Duppy Demetrius that, is the best name that on that just television. I sit there, I always crack up, and I go, hey, Joanne, there's that Duppy. Duppy Demetrius. <laughs> and I started following him on Twitter just because of his name. Oh, and he's great. <laughs> great writer. Really smart. Um, all the writers have been incredible. And, um, so when you went to major crimes, did you know that the role would be big? Did they say anything or did it just grow as the seasons went on? Cause I know with Philip Keene, that happened too. Yeah. His, his role started growing. I mean, so when you went in there, you really, I, you knew you were part of something and a part of a family you liked, yeah, but you didn't know no, how it would go. I had no idea where it would go. Here's what I did know. Um, major crimes focuses more on the justice system than The Closer did. The Closer focused on the crime and the confession. That was what The Closer was. You know, close the deal, get that confession. Um, and I knew, because James Duff had told me, that major crimes would be, oh, hello out there, major crimes would be more about the judicial system. And I play a deputy district attorney, so the judicial system... I mean, I remember 
them him saying something about this is going to focus more on the judicial system. And I called up a friend and I said, aren't I the judicial system? Like, <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that me? Um, so I did know that, but it has, but you know, first season I was on it three times, second season I was on it four times, and then it really exploded. So what's that like? I mean, because all of a sudden you're going from, as you said, it's something that people know your character, and then now, and you you and both Phillips said how the fan base is amazing. Like yeah. there's like a huge, like in like South America, like there's this huge base. What is that like for you? Because you've worked, you've had a good career, you've been consistent, you've yeah. always you've always worked, and you had the book stuff where you're very popular. Yeah. And so you sit there, and you always know. Okay, well, if something doesn't work, hey, I got the books, and that's the thing. You, it's more than most people. Most people have one or the other. Right. You have both. What is it like when you start all of a sudden getting, like you said, the tweets and getting more recognized because it's something you're not used to, and especially being a book person, people aren't going to see you at a, a coffee shop. No, and go, they're not going to hey, see you exactly. You know. So, what <laughs> exactly. is that like for you? How did you change, and did you have to get used to that that people were recognizing you and you were getting, you know, as you said, when you joined Twitter, all these tweets? How does that change you? Because it's something different now. I mean, it's something you said earlier. You know, you, when you were a kid, you didn't want to sit there and be famous. You know, you didn't think. I, I yeah. never thought about that. Yeah. So how does that change you? I think um, it's just been thrilling. Uh, I think it's, it's you know, it came so late that, um, you know, I sort of felt like, you know, when you know when you feel like people don't really feel that happy for you because of jealousies, you know, that, that kind of feeling? I, I felt like people around me, um, it wasn't even so much feeling happy for me, which I'm sure they, they did or whatever, but I think it also made everybody feel like, boy, you just don't know. Like there's no there's no reason to think that you know what's coming. And I've had people talk to me and say like, I look at what happened with your career, you know, because all you hear about is how hard it is for women over a certain age or something. And that I had the opposite experience. My career's gotten better as I've gotten older. So... That doesn't mean those problems aren't there, and that right. doesn't mean that isn't true. It's 100% true. But in my experience, it didn't happen that way. And um, I always think about Ruth Gordon. They asked Ruth Gordon, you know, to what do you attribute your huge late success? And she said, I never faced facts. Right. And I think that, that there's something about going like, look, it's true. All those things are true, those problems. But that doesn't mean things can't open up in ways that you could never imagine. You can't know. And so I think that my success has been um, helpful to other people in terms of saying like, oh, God, I just look over at you and go, hey, I don't, you know, things can change on a dime. And, and, and I'm glad about that. And I think for me, it's been absolutely 100% thrilling and fun and um, certainly came at a time where, look, you know, I'm already married. I have a kid. I have a family. I have my life. If this all went away tomorrow, I would still have my family and my life, and there would be some other bus coming. And whether or not it's as, as wonderful a bus or as thrilling a bus, it's the next bus. And in my life, all I've seen is just keep getting on the buses and then keep rejecting other buses. You know, keep going, yeah, not that bus. I'm going to check out this bus. Go to Canada. You know, take to your bed. Do whatever. Like you just keep following this kind of weird, it's, it, you know, you know, this business is not linear. It doesn't, oh, I know, there's nothing linear about it. There's nothing like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of fields where you, you gain 
and then you gain, and then you gain. You gain prestige, you gain education, you gain knowledge, you gain customers or clients, and there's a linearness to it. And there's nothing linear in an artistic life. And and uh, the only thing that, that, that is consistent is your own development. Right. So that is really consistent. You know, you can keep going, what do I need to learn next? Where do I need to go next? What am I lacking? Um, I think about that a lot. You know, what do I need next? What's missing? Like, you know, I never want to... Um, I... I I couldn't just phone anything in. I, I I would go crazy, you know. So if I <clears throat> if I sense that, if I sense I'm phoning anything in, back to the drawing board, start again. What's going on? You know why? Reinvent. Re. You know. Do I sound pretentious? No, not at all. I think you. It's it's true though because you, you don't. <laughs> it's true though. I got out. I so the reason I got out of stand up comedy. I would, I mean I do a joke occasionally around now, but I was in a stage in Youngstown, Ohio, at a club called The Funny Farm. And it was this is probably, because I did it on the road from 88 to maybe 94. And I sat there, and I was just, I was on stage, and I was going through the motions. And I said, you know what? I didn't do this to go through the motions. So I stopped doing it. I, I basically, whatever I had booked, I finished out, and then I moved out west, and I waited tables, and I did different stuff, and I just said I needed to change. And I think a lot of people are afraid to do that, and but we need to, you know, you can't call it in because you mean because everyone calls it in, but that's not why you're that's why you don't struggle. That's why you don't go to Canada and sleep under a desk to call it in. You you don't because right. that's why you're not, you know, that's right. why you do what you do. Right. So now you must love major crimes. The fact that it's your seasons, like they're they're like it's not like a whole long one. You get to do stuff, and then you probably get to go do your audiobooks, and you come back and there's another season because. They spread them out, and I like yeah, that because you too. sit there. Is that easier for you? Mm-hmm. The fact that you can just sit there, or do you feel like oh, I don't want to turn it off right now? I want to keep going with the character. It's like would be like, what's easier for you? You know, I'm not there every day, right? So I think it's different for me than it would be for uh, Philip or Kieran or Mary or um, GW. You know, someone who's there every day. Those guys need a break. You know, those guys need to take some time, I, I, I think. You, you know, they, 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 you know, you got to go and do something else. My character is sometimes on there, you know, sometimes I'll go and I'm there every day of that, of that episode. Sometimes I'm there one day. So I get a lot of time, um, downtime. Uh, m- so, you know, I could probably keep going. Um, I love that job. I mean, I just love it. It's been a dream come true. And uh, and then, you know, there's that weird time where you don't know whether you get the next season. So until we're picked up, when it, you know, you never right. know. And um, there certainly isn't like anyone says, okay, this is what you'll be doing for the next five years. Every year is a re-up, you know. And, and, and look, I don't, I never know. I'm not a regular on the show. So I don't know how much I'm ever going to, be on it and I don't take it for granted for one second I never assume that um I'm going to be there a lot or um it's uh you know I have no complaints now how many we have a few minutes left how many audiobooks do you do a year like is it something that they come in spurts or it's just here or there how's that work I do a lot less now because of the show uh audiobooks are 
you know, when you do audiobooks, you really need to do all day, every day until the book is done. It's not something you're going to go and do a couple hours and then, you know, it need, it has deadlines. It needs to be done. And it's, I can't do that when I'm shooting. So this last season, for instance, we shot from March till January. I couldn't really do a lot of books because I don't know when I'm going to be needed. Um, but before Major Crimes and before it, I was working so much, I still probably did um, less than a lot of, you know, maybe I did 25 or 30 or something like that a year because I have a kid. And, um, you know, so I'll only work during his school day. And I don't, you know, there's, it's easier, I think, if you can work a lot during the weekend or work a lot, you know, because a lot of the books you do out of your own home now. So it, it, I always had kind of, didn't do probably as many as, as a lot of people. Um, but I'm about to do one tomorrow. Uh, there's a book that has been one of the most influential books for me I've ever done, which is a book called Quiet. I don't know if you heard of it. It's um, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. It's a phenomenal nonfiction book. And she's written um, a version for young adults. So I'm going to do that tomorrow. You know. So we do that at home, or will you go to a studio? I'll go to the studio. I'll go to Random House. And so you'll go, and then you sit there. Now, how long will that take you to do? Um, probably three days. Okay, so and the days are long. Yeah, about about um, you know, let's say ten to four, ten to five. But there's no characters in this one. It's you just. Yeah, this is easy. Okay, so this this is this is like Ooh, your, you can hear my my voice is in such good shape for it too. Yeah, but no, you'll be fine. This yeah. is like your cakewalk one. You're like, okay, not not a cakewalk, oh, but it's it's easy. Oh, this is the easiest thing in the world because it's it's you know I don't you don't need to prepare anything. And um, whenever you're doing a nonfiction book, for the most part, you really are just the voice of the author. So you just open up the page and just start talking. Just talk, you know, just like read it. And and and, and the, the exciting thing about nonfiction books is that uh, every nonfiction book, for the most part, is an act of passion from the writer. That That writer is passionate about that subject. And so you just step into like, wow, what, what do I know about this? What are we going to talk about about this? How do I, who is this for? And what, um, and, and how do I communicate what this author is communicating? Right. Um, it, it is really, 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 really easy. Well, I want to thank you. We have to wrap up. I want to thank you for coming on. Now, now give, give, my give, your, uh, give your Twitter. So you oh, get yes, yes, New yes. Minions. Uh, new Minions. Please join us at, uh, at Kate Amazer. Uh, that's K-A-T-H-E-M-A-Z-U-R. And I also have a, a Facebook. Page. Well, yeah, people also follow her. Follow me on Twitter. That's at Cooper Talk. I also, I want to thank my sponsor, Cafe Valet. That's CafeValet.com. Remember, for their starter uh, kit, put the the coupon code COOPER in all caps. That looks cool. And you get $5 off uh, the $25 deal. And it's very good coffee. And also, as I said, follow me on Twitter. Send me an email, Cooper, the CooperTalk.net. I always want to respond. I want to hear... Who you want to hear on my show? My website, coopertalk.net, has over 475 episodes up. That's a lot of episodes. And you can listen to them on my website, or you can go to iTunes or Stitcher and just type in one word, Cooper Talk. Or if you have a uh, Android phone or tablet, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk again, one word. That's how you spell it. That's my branding. And I have an app. It's free. And so you can listen to all the shows there. So do that. And uh, also, don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. You know, when I went through my health problem a few years ago, I had to change my diet completely. So I wrote, it's a 120-page cookbook. And what's great about it is there's no pictures to intimidate you. There's not tons of ingredients. So if you don't have cumin, 
Don't worry. You don't have to cook with cumin. They're easy recipes. It's mostly for cooking for one. So if you're sitting there and you want to eat healthy and be better, do it. So go to StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. But if you go to StopTheSalt.com, I make more money. And I'll even send it to you. And if you want, say, hey, will you sign it? So please check out at Cooper Talk at Kata Mazer at Twitter. Follow her. And I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your eat your vegetables, drink your water. Take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.